I'd like to start out this episode by reading a quote about Slade Cleaves from the great writer Stephen King. I'm glad I found Slade Cleaves, because my life would have been poorer without him. You'll feel the same, I think, when you listen to this beautifully crafted album. Listen, go to one of Slade's shows, take a friend, and pass on the news. Not all the good guys wear hats. Again, that's Stephen King talking about Slade Cleaves. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Slade Cleaves. Slade is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Wimberley, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Slade at sladecleaves.com. If you know me very well, you know I'm a big fan of Slade Cleaves. I think there's nobody better than him out there. There are people with big hype machines behind them and a lot of money thrown behind their records, but there's nobody making better music than Slade. Slade was on back in episode 11. It seems like forever ago. Can't believe I've made that many episodes since then. But if you haven't heard it, you might want to go back and listen to that. It was a really good episode. I visited Slade in his home in Wimberley, Texas, and he had this idea that he wanted to talk about mentors, people in his life that helped him out along the way. And I thought that was a great idea. I'm kind of ashamed that I hadn't thought of that myself. But we recorded this in Slade's home. And like I said before, Slade's a really good guy, and I think it comes across in this. He's the kind of guy that I wouldn't mind having as a neighbor. And I don't say that about too many people. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Slade Cleaves. Yeah, well, it just years go by, I realized how lucky I was and at the right time. When I was just starting out, just starting to tour nationally, uh, just getting my first record deal, I had all these amazing mentors come into my life, in and out of my life, and uh, including, you know, Gurf Morlix, who produced my first couple of records, and Ray Wiley Hubbard, who I supported as a sporting act on his tours, and I got to ride the bus with Fred Eaglesmith for a week, and his crazy characters, and you know, I, I I appreciated at the time, but as time goes by, I appreciate it more and more. These guys were so generous with their time, and and so encouraging, and and gave me the confidence to keep going when I didn't have much going for me. Um, but they saw potential, and they uh, they devoted a lot of energy towards helping me along. So it was a beautiful thing. Don Walzer was another guy who I know we talked about him before, but he was just so generous um 
I remember in, I think, 1994, I got married. Karen and I got married in 94 up in Maine where we grew up. And afterwards, we had a reception for all our Texas friends in Austin. And I mentioned it to Don after a show, and I went to see him play at the, you know, the Pure Texas Band down on 6th Street at Babes, I think it was. And I invited him to this wedding reception, and he said, well, well, I'll come and play it. I said, oh, no, Don, you don't do that. You know, just come and have some barbecue with us. And he said, no, I'll play. I said, oh, Don, I'm not asking that. I just want you to come. And he looked at me, he said, Slade, am I your friend? And I said, yeah, of course. Well, I'm going to play at your reception then, he said. <laughs> it was just, and he and Skinny Don, bless his heart, they showed up and played for half an hour. You know, just I set up a little PA and they played a little set and joined us for some barbecue and just so generous. And, you know, he was laid up for three years in bed, you know, his last three years of life with end-stage diabetes. And the year before that, he was suffering and, you know, had to cancel a lot of shows. You know, his health really really let him down in his final years and when he was laid up in his home all that time I, it's my, one of my biggest regrets of life is that i didn't visit him more often i i went to play songs for him at his bedside and i went with gurf morlicks one time and we played for him trading off hank williams songs and i do don walter songs and and gurf uh gurf played the mom and dad waltz you know lefty frizzell and don loved that um, and he said, oh, Lefty. He said, my dad, my dad took me to see Lefty when I was 15 years old or something like that in Midland, the big town from La Mesa, where they grew up. He said, my dad took me to see Lefty and we got to Midland and got to, found the club and found out Lefty was in jail. Don't know why. But what happened was uh, the fans that came to see Lefty, they passed the hat and they got enough bail money to get lefty out for the show and so he was able to do the show <laughs> people bailed him out so that's that's a dedicated fan base and i hope I'm, if i'm ever in that situation my fans will rise up for me and bail me out another thing i regret knowing don walzer is i i never thought to ask him about buddy holly i just assumed that he must have known buddy holly because they're from that part of the country that time of the that time of the century and playing music. I'm pretty sure it's, I think one of his bandmates told him that uh, they used to see Buddy Holly go play in the, in the bowling alley or something like that in town. So I wish I'd thought to talk more about those old days with him. What a, what a resource, you know, what, what a connection to the past. And I remember trying to get him to sing along or trade verses. And, and it was, it was amazing because he was so weak and lying on his back but that pure opera singer tenor that he had would come through, you know. It would be it would be weak, but it was there, you know, that beautiful sound of his voice. And he could even do a little yodel too. One time I went to visit him at home with Michael O'Connor, and I had learned a bunch of his songs over the years, and that, that was kind of our bond between me and Don, is he knew that I was the guy that was learning his songs and keeping those songs alive. And towards the end of his life, it became more and more important to him, or he expressed that to me. He'd say to me, you know, don't don't let people forget about me, Slade. You know, you got to keep those songs, keep this music going. So I learned a bunch of his songs and those tricky yodel songs. And the last time I went to see him, I was getting ready to head out on a big tour, and he was declining. 
Like I said, he'd been in bed for almost three years. And Michael and I went to see him, and we figured this might be our last time. And so I learned his signature song, Rolling Stone from Texas, which is a, <laughs> it's an acrobatic kind of effort there. It's quite the yodel. And uh, it takes every ounce of energy and determination I can muster. So Michael and I played that for him and saw a little tear roll down his cheek and he chuckled when it was done and said, boys, that was mighty fine. But, you know, when I did that song, I did it two steps higher. (laughs) (laughs) He was, he was proud till the end. I remember shaking his hand the last time I I was on his left side and and I I went to shake his left hand because that was easier to get to. Um, but he shook his head, and it took him about 20 seconds, but he got his right hand out from under the blankets and reached across his belly and shook me with his right hand because that's how a gentleman shakes a hand, you know? This is in his final weeks of life. He was one of a kind. Well, I was just so lucky to get hooked up with Fred Eaglesmith when I was uh, just starting to tour uh we had the same booking agent nc fly and seymour gunther here in austin and so i was a big fred eagle smith fan that uh drive-in movie you know one of the best cds ever um i started learning his songs and and seymour asked me if i wanted to open a few shows with fred on the east coast and i said yeah of course and so uh, i got to ride the bus one of fred's buses (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with the gang and this is i don't know i was looking through old records and i think it was probably 96 or 7 or 8 something like that so i was kind of an unknown quantity so it was a thrill to get to open up a show and get to play for 100 150 people that were into music and you know just try to make an impression but uh the biggest thrill was was riding the bus you know it just it just, I felt like a rock star, even though it was, you know, a 40-year-old bus kind of cobbled <laughs> together and makeshift kind of thing. I swear he, he put uh, he put a gallon of oil and two gallons of antifreeze in it every morning in the hotel parking lot. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, it had like couches in it, you know, just couches from some house, you know, they weren't built into the van. It was just, so, but it was just such a thrill to ride the, the bus, to show up at a gig in a bus and walk out that bus door instead of showing up in a dodge dart it was just a real thrill is he a motorhead yeah he he would he would strap he would uh get into his overalls and and work on it and get under the you know open up the back hood and try to fix that antifreeze leak you know (laughs) and he drove and and it was such a it was such a cool time too because you know uh driving movie was the record and he nothing against his current band or He's had a ton of great bands over the years, but uh, the band I was with was, uh, it was Ralph on bass and Willie P on mandolin and harmonica and Washboard Hank on the washboard and percussion. And that was just such a tight little unit of guys that had, you know, been playing together for years and were getting a little bit of success for the first time. So it was a really exciting time. And just watching them work, I learned so much and, and sort of, put my band together based on what I saw them doing, you know, but I was, I was just so green and so excited. I remember <laughs> we left a gig down in Maryland or something. And the next gig was in Northampton at the Iron Horse. And they really liked the hotel in Northampton. So we left 
after the show in Maryland to drive all night to get to Northampton. So I was thrilled to be on an overnight bus trip, you know. And I, I, a couple hours into the show, into the ride, uh, I got my guitar out, you know, and I wanted to get a little jam going. And, you know, Fred rolled his eyes, <laughs> went to the back, and <laughs> kind of teased me for being green in a sweet way, you know. But um, Washboard got out his guitar, and I'd play a song, and, you know, I played, I couldn't, I, you know, it was the inspiration. It was, we were on the New Jersey Turnpike at three in the morning, and I had to play Open All Night, you know, the Springsteen song, uh, or Mr. State Trooper, I think I did that one too. Washboard Hank played a song, and then Willie P was driving the big bus, he had a glass of red wine and the big old steering wheel, and, and he would sing a song a cappella when it was his turn. And it was a re- really sweet little jam session in the middle of the night. We got on the wrong road and had to double back, and we are just having so much fun. But we made it to the hotel in, in Northampton, and, and I was uh, bunking with Washboard Hank and on this trip. I'll just give you the highlights of one of my favorite stories. Uh, Washboard, he was telling me something about, I think he was... I think he was traveling with Stompin' Tom Connors, uh, who's an ornery guy to travel with, apparently. And I think it was something like Stompin' Tom had a dog that they had to sneak into a hotel or, or something. And, but Stompin' Tom wouldn't feed the dog dog food. He had a horse's leg that he was feeding the dog. And Washboard Hank had to hide the dog's leg under his bed at the hotel for some reason. And he, <laughs> he got kicked out of the hotel for... For having a horse's leg under his under his bed. That's how that story ended. <laughs> Ray Wiley, I got to open up for early on, and you know Ray. He's as long as I've known him for 25 years. He's always made a point to reach out to any young singer songwriter coming up through the ranks that he sees something in, and offers assistance, helps him make the first record helps coordinate them with booking agents or clubs or uh, fellow songwriters. Sure enough, you know, he put his arm around me and said, kid, I think you got something my first year in Austin. And I didn't even know who he was. That's how young I was, how green I was. When I first got a record deal with, with Rounder, Ray was on the label. And so Rounder put together a a package tour over in Europe uh, with me and Ray and his band I think Carrie Newcomer was on that trip, or maybe Lynn Miles. We did a bunch of a bunch of trips over there. I can't remember who the first one was, but but uh, Ray was just the perfect guy for me to watch because uh, you know he, he puts on such an amazing show, and he just Ray and Fred Eaglesmith they taught me that you need to you need to develop a persona. You know, you can't just and you need to do a show. You can't just up, go up there and and play 20 songs back to back, you know, you got to engage people. Uh, you got a lesson that a lot of people never, ever learn. Yeah. It's a really important one though. People want to have fun and be entertained. Yeah. To see that every night and to see him work their show and work the audience, but also have, have their set pieces that they do every night that work to set the song in motion and to, to put some pacing into the set. You know, it's just such a learning experience, but, but off stage too, you know, Ray, you know, he comes from that kind of rock and roll attitude where, you know, you're out here to have fun too, you know, you're out here to enjoy life. And you know, I remember over in Amsterdam, you know, he just revel in the, the cappuccino, you know, with the little biscuit, you know, this is class, man, this is living. And just, you know, uh, practical advice on 
just learning how to treat people, you know, treat people with respect. And if there's something going wrong, you know, you don't cause a scene, you know, you don't get mad at people. You gently steer them the right way. You know, just, it was so good to, to watch him work. And, and of course, um, first time we have a little spare time, he gets his guitar out and shows me how to finger pick. You know, I never finger picked before. And he showed me the finger picking style that he uses, which to this day, you know, that's the only finger picking I do is what he taught me. I never went very far with it or developed it, but that's, that's, uh, that's where I learned that. Gurfs is another person that I've benefited so much from, just watching him work. And How did you meet Gurf? Well, I remember in Maine, uh, the summer before we moved here, we were here for a few months in early 92, and it was a thrill, but it was also just disastrous financially because we couldn't find jobs and I couldn't find work. And I sent out cassettes and got no answer. Karen went to bartending school and got a job as a bartender and then broke her ankle on the stairs on ice. And so we literally, we had to use a cash advance to pay our month's rent and hightailed it back to Portland where I had bar gigs and Karen had work she could slip back into to just sort of rebuild our coffers and try again in 92. Uh, but that summer of 92, uh, I got a car, my buddy, mechanic friend found a car for $250 that I, I worked on all summer to get it ready for the big trip. And as I worked on that car in my dad's garage, uh, I was listening to a, a local community radio station up there, fantastic station in Blue Hill, Maine. And they were playing the new Lucinda Williams record, which was Sweet Old World at the time, summer of 92. And they kept playing the song Hot Blood. And I just loved that song. You know, I just, I said, who is that? You know, who made that sound? That sound is, that's what my, my sound wants. That's what my, I want my sound to be someday. That's my goal. And I found out it was Gurf Morlicks. And so as soon as I got to Austin, I, I looked for him and I'd see him play like little benefits or something with Lucinda or with other people. And, and I remember one time I was playing a, an open mic or something at, at Art's Rib House. I think it was Sarah Elizabeth Campbell's Bummer Night, I think. And I saw Gurf walk in and I thought, oh, I got to impress Gurf. And for some reason, I had just learned, a, I had just learned the, the George Jones song, Yabba Dabba Do. <laughs> I was having fun playing that. And I thought, oh, there's an obscure, funny song. I'll try to get his ear. And it, uh, I, I couldn't tell if he noticed or not or anything. But basically, I, every time I saw Gurf at a gig and I was playing, I, I tried to get his attention. But I, didn't, I never did meet him. Maybe I just, maybe somebody introduced me to him briefly, but it wasn't much of a connection. So it wasn't until uh, Ken Irwin from Rounder finally said, okay, I think uh, let's, let's make a record together. And, and Gurf and Lloyd Maines were the two people I wanted to produce. They were the short list. And so I sent cassettes to each of them. And Gurf got back right away and said, hey, let's meet. Let's meet and talk about this. And for, for years and years, every time I saw Lloyd, he'd say, Dang it, you know, that I was so busy when I got that cassette and I didn't have time to listen to it. I, I could have had that record. And <laughs> but uh, Gurf, Gurf was available and, and uh, he made this record for, I, th I think the budget was $5,000. And um, I may have borrowed a little more to make it work, but Gurf said, you know, we made a $30,000 record. And it's true, you know, he made a real record for five grand. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I just feel 
in hindsight, so lucky that, you know, I, just, I was just a guy with a handful of songs and Gurf agreed to produce my first record, my first released record, and on the cheap too. And this is, you know, he was still with Lucinda Williams and still, he was at the top of the music scene there, of our scene, you know. But he took time out to to make a rec my first record and, and it came out great and, you know, set me on my way. And just getting to know Gurf has just been such a joy in my life. He, he's just such a smart person, just so fun to be around. He has so many stories. I mean, he just has stories about everything from like tuning the Edge's piano at the Coliseum in, in L.A. before U2 goes on to, <laughs> to trading songs with Springsteen at Harry Dean Stanton's house, you know, after a gig somewhere. Just amazing stories. And he's so humble with them. He won't, he won't bring up a story unless, unless you bring up some point that relates to his story. And then he has a story like for every situation that comes up, he has one. <laughs> it's just been a joy to hear those over the years. He's a different kind of guy. I remember, I think the first time I talked to him on the phone, talked about phones and he said he didn't have a phone. He was just using Skype because he thought that it wasn't worth it to own a phone now or something <laughs> like that. I just loved the way his brain worked. Yeah. That's funny. He's mentioned Skype for, because for the longest time, he wouldn't get a cell phone. He wouldn't get a computer. <laughs> we recorded Broke Down on ADATs, which was not, it wasn't cutting edge, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, obsolete at the time, but it, it certainly wasn't cutting edge. No. For the people at home that don't know, mm. ADAT is recording onto a VHS tape. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was looked upon as a high-quality thing. It was, in and the late 90s, yeah. And obviously from the sound of the album, it sounds great. It's one of my favorite sounding albums and one of my favorite albums. Yeah, that, that, that album, again, was just a, kind of a miracle of things coming together just in a beautiful way. You know, that record proves that you don't need a fancy studio to make a good-sounding record, you know. Have you been to Garf's studio? It's, it's his bedroom, it's, or it's a spare bedroom is the control room and there's some cables running to another bedroom and that's the cutting room and then if you bring a drummer or a organ player he, he's in the living room there's just cables on the floor and you sit sit on a bed and the microphone's there he has you know the best microphones and and uh, equipment and knows how to use them and just has the best toolbox and just makes those records in a bedroom they sound amazing This all begs the question, have you returned the favor? Are you mentoring or are you even interested in that? Or? I am, of course, for, for quite a few years, ever since, you know, I, I achieved some success in 2000 with Broke Down and things have been really good ever since. And and I knew right away that it was my turn to step up. And uh, I've, I've seen a handful of, of people that I do believe in. You know, there's people like Graham Weber who I helped get him some of his first Austin gigs, and uh, he's doing real well now with his own thing. Um, it was a guy named J.J. Barron from from Rhode Island that I was trying to help out, and, and he kind of disappeared. I don't know what's going on with him. He, had, he was one of these prodigies who just was writing, you know, Woody Guthrie-type songs at the age of 18 or 19, you know? I think, actually, I think he was 17 when I first met him. Um, but, you know, some burn out quickly. I don't, I don't know what he's doing now. But uh, Eric Betancourt is another guy. He's from Maine. 
but I, I didn't meet him until a few years ago down here. He's just a really great writer and, and produces his own stuff, just a real great musician. So I definitely have learned a few lessons over the years, and I'm very happy to share them and help people sort of skip a few steps if, if, uh, if they're willing to come to me. I would be terrified to say that. Over the, over the airwaves. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't. Maybe you should, maybe you should edit that out. I'll, I'll come to you if I think I want to help you. Let's do it that way. Some friends of ours, mutual friends, Sandra and Luciano, outside of Amsterdam, who book my tours, are going to their kitchen, and there's pictures of you. These are all press photos. You, Ray Wiley. Uh, I believe Gurf, Don Walzer, and I do believe I remember Sonner and Luciano telling me about some game that you guys played. I don't know who came up with this, whether they did or um, I believe it was Boris McCutcheon who came up with this. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he was there when we did it. It was a long time ago, but uh, I guess it must have been a night off and we were crashing with Sonner and Luciano and drinking beers and having fun and Somebody proposed that we play this game where you grab a quarter coin and you sort of wedge <laughs> it in your butt cheeks with your clothes on, with your <laughs> with your jeans on. Uh, you just sort of clamp down on it and see, and and then race across the room and see how far you can get across the room <laughs> with the quarter without dropping the quarter. And uh, it makes for a, a fun time. <laughs> how drunk was everybody? <laughs> Well, we were we were hauling beer by the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you done this? Have you done that game with them? Oh God, no. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm way too freaking uptight. <laughs> never, never played quarters with Sonder and Luch. Well, Sonder and Luciano were in complete agreement that you were the undisputed champion. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the most uptight. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> but I really appreciate you inviting me over here. Oh, so good to catch up with you a little bit, Otis. It's beautiful here in Wimberley. Yeah, we got deer and raccoons and foxes. You ever heard of fox bark? Yes. Yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. Took us a while to figure out what that was. They're around. Chupacabra. <laughs> yeah. Right, thank you, man. Thank you, Otis. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Slade for inviting me into his home in Wimberley, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Slade at sladecleaves.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy my music, if you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.